welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark. I'm the Associate Director of Church Society, and I'm your host here on these podcasts. You heard that the good folk from the Junior Anglican Evangelical Conference singing Let the Vain World Applaud or Frown. That is, if you're a regular listener, you'll know uh, our theme tune for these podcasts. Although I believe some people thought it was When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, uh, which is often sung to the same tune. But if you've been to any Church Society event, Church Society conference, or a previous uh, Jake conference, you'll know that we often like to sing Let the Vain World Applaud or Frown, uh, one of Augustus Top Lady's great hymns. We'll hear more of that at the end, but I uh, just want to reassure you that won't replace our normal theme tune. It's lovely to hear them uh, singing the words, but I think perhaps our normal version is slightly more tuneful. We will be uh, bringing you podcasts from Jake over the next few weeks. We had some terrific talks at the conference. It was on the theme of the gospel in the parish. We had uh, a number of speakers really sharing with us from their great experience of parish ministry, the opportunities and the challenges uh, and the realities of parish life. Wallace Benn uh, talking about what parish churches are. Uh, Johnny Jukes talking about pastoring a parish church. Uh, Lee Gatiss talking from the pastoral epistles to Timothy 4 about the centrality of word ministry, preaching the gospel uh, in parish life. Sean Morris, a, a vicar uh, from a church near Stoke-on-Trent, talking about priorities in the parish church, how we can keep focused uh, on the main thing. Mel Lacey, a wonderful session on pastoring young people in the parish church. And that was a real challenge uh, to a room full of people who were mostly not youth and children's workers, one or two, but mostly not, but actually how pastoring young people is all of our responsibility. And then we ended the conference with a Bible reading from Bishop Nick McKinnell, Bishop of Plymouth, who took us to Acts 20 uh, and Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders. On the middle day of the conference, we traditionally have a number of seminars uh, on various topics. There are some topics we always cover at this conference. So because it's a junior conference, we have a number of delegates every year who are still in the position of considering going into ministry or maybe beginning the process of selection for ordination. So we always run a seminar uh, on how to get through a BAP. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, a couple of people who are on bishop selection panels who are willing to come and lead those seminars for us. Uh, this year we also had seminars uh, from the wonderful John Truscott uh, on how to manage volunteers in the church and I know people were thrilled that he came uh, and shared so much of his wisdom on the administrative process of running a church. Uh, we had seminars on the national church and some of the issues around that, a seminar on simply how to grow a parish church, thinking about both evangelism and discipleship, seminar on pastoral care in the parish church. And another one thinking about opportunities beyond the parish, uh, Sarah Morris, who's a prison chaplain, uh, came and led that seminar for us. But we're going to begin this week uh, by sharing some of the seminar that was led by Paul Darlington. 
Paul is a member of Church Society Council, in fact, until recently was chairman of Church Society Council, uh, and he's been involved in Church Society for a while. He is a vicar of a church in Oswestry, which is in very rural Shropshire, uh, just about, I think, crossing the border into Wales, and also recently became rural dean over there. He's been there for 13 years, and... Um, when he moved there, it was not a church that traditionally had had evangelical ministry. And so he led a seminar on how we think about moving beyond the boundaries of where uh, evangelicals have traditionally ministered, some of the particular challenges of working with a congregation who haven't perhaps been taught in the way that we might uh, want them to be, who uh, won't be familiar with the same kinds of uh, language and the same kind of priorities, and how to do that in a way uh, which uh, honours the gospel and honours Christ, but is also loving and gracious towards that congregation. So obviously it was a seminar, there was a lot of discussion, it went on for well over an hour, we're not going to have all of that in the podcast, but I just thought it would be helpful for, for many of us uh, to listen in uh, to what some of Paul had to say on that really important subject. Uh, if you end up in a non-evangelical parish, you're probably going to find yourself um, at various times surprised, uh, worried, confused, uh, uh, and angry, uh, amongst some other things. Uh, my first big surprise was on my very first Sunday, where I was halfway through the Eucharistic prayer, uh, and there was this enormous clanging of bells behind my left ear, <laughs> which I was not expecting at all. I, was, I didn't know it was coming. He'd secretly picked this thing up and ding, 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 ding. Uh, just carried on, surprised. Uh, I worked out pretty, pretty shortly after getting there that the purpose of Sunday school, <clears throat> uh, which was, was to produce people who were exactly like we are in the congregation. So you put them into Sunday school to get them out of the way, and then when they come out, they will be just like us, wanting exactly what we want in the same way that we want it. That was how Sunday school was perceived. That worried me. Uh, Sunday shortly before Easter, I was very confused when I walked into the church building. I think I, got, I was a bit late that morning, so I didn't really have time to register stuff. I walked out, everything was covered in purple cloth. Mm. I had no experience of this in my life own church life up to that point thoroughly confused uh, I made my wife wince because I said to the congregation if you're wondering why everything's covered in purple cloth so <laughs> my wife gently instructed me later that this was not the way to, 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 to do those things <laughs> um, so that's worried uh, what surprised worried confused angry um, my four-year-old, she was confused. There's all sorts of things going on in church that she'd just not seen in, um, uh, in the curacy uh, where I'd served. So we had, a, we, had a, we had a basic rule. If it didn't happen in Blackpool, where I was a curate, uh, don't do it here. That was the basic rule for a four-year-old. So I was, walked into the vestry to hear uh, the sacristan declaring to my daughter... Don't worry, I'll teach you. I don't care what your father thinks. That made me cross. That made me angry. So you start in a parish where you're expecting all these different kind of crazy experiences. You're, a, you're an evangelical. Uh, and as you look out on the congregation that morning, you wonder, 
have I gone to a Christian church? Mm -hmm. well, what I wanted to discuss just in pairs or threes or something. Have you gone to a Christian church? How, what, what's going to make you say yes to that? What's going to make you say no? What's going to confuse you about it? In what sense have you gone to a Christian church? It's a good question. And of course, it's an important question. If you're in a place where you are the minister of a church, you need to know that you're ministering in a church, a Christian church. I wonder what your answer would be to that. How would you tell whether you're in a Christian church or just in a beautiful building uh, with a number of people gathered together because they enjoy spending time with one another, because they enjoy singing, because they enjoy doing uh, whatever it is that they do together. How do you identify a Christian church? Here's what Paul had to say about that. Paul Darlington, not Paul in the Bible, just so we're clear. I'm going I'm to come out quite strongly on one side uh, of that particular question. Um, I want to I wanna, I wanna say to you, why would there be any doubt? That's why I, I want to start. Um, I'll try and defend that a bit. Um, but at a basic level, um, they say they are, if you ask them. Uh, you'll have noticed that, that, that during that first service, they, they probably stood up and said the creed together. And they sang Christian hymns. Uh, they said amen to all the prayers, and they listened to the Bible being read. And they give their money, time, and talents towards that community uh, and its life. Um, generally, they're not ashamed to be known as people who go to church and are Christians, uh, to those outside um, the church building. It's, it's part of who they are and what they do. Uh, the village, if it's a village, or the, they know that they go to church. They're baptised, and to be honest, they're really glad to be baptised people. Uh, it's important to them. And they seem to be doing the sorts of things that baptised people ought to be doing um, as uh, they gather and live in their community. And if the Lord's Supper was taken from them, that would be a real loss to them. They would feel that. They'd feel a real lack. And I think they do want more people to come and share what they have. They don't want to see the, the church completely disappear uh, and... Uh, demise. So why would there be any doubt that this is a Christian church? That doesn't, of course, mean being naive. And Paul Darlington went on to give us a number of examples uh, of incidents with individuals and in his church, which would genuinely give you reason to doubt whether the people that you are dealing with were Christians, whether the church that you were serving in was Christian. Here's just a couple of those to give you a flavour uh, of some of what he's had to deal with in that situation. What do you do when you have to stop the PCC meeting and say, okay, let's just get this straight. This is a Christian church that doesn't want Bibles. Mm. Just because the way the discussion had gone about what we we're going to do with the scriptures on a Sunday morning and whether we'd have Bibles or how we would help people to... So I stopped the PCC and asked that question. Is it Christian church when you have to ask that question? And then uh, there's one good, one exciting thing in these seven things, which is this one. A uh, guy who became a Christian in the 1950s under Billy Graham in Oxford. He won the Law Prize in his year at Oxford. Gone back to Oswald Street to um, 
practiced family law all his life. Uh, and after three months, he came up to me and said, I've worked out what's been missing, which was the teaching of the scriptures. So what did that mean for the last 50 years of his Christian life? Because if you asked him, it's asked converted under Billy Graham in the 1950s in Oxford. And then he suddenly has the, the scriptures opened in 2005. And he said, ah, oh, now I know what's been missing. Because what may be the case is they've just simply been starved of any Christian teaching. So they're really confused about resurrection. They're really confused about the deity of Christ in the face of JWs. Because they've been starved of good Christian teaching. And it seems to me in the scriptures it's the leaders of such people who get it in the neck. Mm. So Ezekiel 34 is the classic uh, passage. Sheep, the, the, my sheep are like sheep without a shepherd. The leaders have been looking after themselves but they have not been feeding the sheep so I myself will come and rescue and feed my sheep. And Jesus picks up on that precisely in, in Mark 6, 34, around the 5,000. He saw that the people were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he had compassion on them. He began to teach them. Starved sheep because the under-shepherds have starved them. Now that to me sounds a much more realistic assessment of congregations in the Church of England who are happy to be known as Christians, who sing the hymns, who do, who do all that. And for all the world, kind of look like Christians. And if, if you're a Muslim looking on, they definitely look like Christians. Mm. But they're starved <coughs> of good Christian teaching. Their under-shepherds really haven't given them any help to be Christian disciples. And in a sense, they're doing the very best that they can, given what they're being fed. So, teach them. <clears throat> There's just under a million people in Church of England churches on a Sunday. I think many of them are simply starved Christians. I think of that guy, 1950, 2005. He suddenly worked out what food was. <laughs> what about those other just short of a million people? I think that's exactly right. That's certainly my experience of going around uh, a good number of Anglican churches uh, in the Diocese of Lichfield that are not evangelical churches. They are full of people who genuinely love the Lord, who have never been taught and are starved of the word. And of course, therefore, are making bad decisions about things. Of course, they're doing things that we would look on and think, well, why on earth would you do that? Because they don't know any better. Because they have not had a shepherd to lead the sheep. And so if that's the kind of people in your church, what sort of ministry should we be doing? Ministry, um, our practice, is the same everywhere and in every context. Prayer and preaching. Uh, no rocket science, I'm afraid, about our practice. But prayer and preaching, because we're looking for heart change. 
that's prayer and preaching. Um, the one thing we should know as evangelicals, prayer, because it's God's work in people's hearts to change what we love so that we love him, which will change what we do and we'll grow in our understanding. So prayer and preaching, because we know that it's through his word his gospel, his good news, which is the power of God to save people, that heart change comes. So most basic, our practice, is prayer and preaching. And so if we think about starved sheep, the overriding thing we have to offer them is a prayerful, warm-hearted gospel of Jesus. For the transformation of their hearts, <clears throat> so that what or who they love, <clears throat> they then follow and grow in. I'll give you a load of references about the Word of God and how the, the, new, the, how the Scriptures see. Uh, Romans 1.16, 1 Peter 1.23, uh, the born of the Word. Uh, Colossians 1.28.29, 2, 6 and 7. Deuteronomy 32, 47. These are not idle words. They are your life, Moses says. Isaiah 55, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, 6. This ministry needs to be with compassion, as we've seen from Mark 6. If you're teaching, it's, it grows out of compassion for the people. <clears throat> you're not trying to prove yourself or anything like that. It grows out of compassion for the people. And it, I, I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul talks about how the gospel has come to the Thessalonians. And in the course of that chapter, he talks about who he's trying to please, uh, which is not his mates, he's trying to please God. And he describes himself as ministering like a mother, he refers to himself as, a, he talks about their brothers and sisters not being a burden to them. He describes himself as a father, encouraging, comforting and urging, and reminds them that it is the word at work uh, in them. Uh, all the time, this is joined with the continued prayer for all of them all the time in chapter 1. And you think, okay, that's, that's, this is the ministry that changes hearts uh, in people. Uh, to my mind, that's pretty much what I mean by an evangelical church. I'm not defining it by the congregation at all, really. I'm defining it by the, the, the health of the prayer and the preaching, the ministry amongst the people. And that's not just by the minister, but just general. The prayer and the preaching, the basic shape of ministry. So I think, generally speaking, if there's one thing that needs to change when you arrive in a parish like this, it is the preaching. People aren't going to see the praying change in the same way that they're going to see the preaching change. Um, but what is a sermon to this kind of congregation? Well, there's a question. So I discovered that it was um, five minutes of the vicar's musings. That's, that, that was the perception of the sermon from the congregation. It took me quite a while to work all this out. The vicar's musings, and they just thought that the new vicar had some musings on the Bible. Mm. But nothing more weighty or authoritative than that. You know, he just the vicar sat down for coffee on Friday and thought about some things and he gave us five minutes on that well this one sits down with his coffee and has a bible and he gives us five minutes on that 
Um, it wasn't five minutes, we talked about that a minute. Um, uh, so I, I then deliberately had to change, when I worked this out, I started having headings which said, the Bible says. But that wasn't enough either. So the next headings were, Jesus teaches us that. Every heading, Jesus teaches us that. We should pray. Jesus teaches us that. Just to, as we're preaching through Mark's gospel, we're meeting Jesus. He's saying to us, just to try and get a slightly higher view of what a sermon might be um, to the congregation. Um, and just to have, it took me a while to wake up to that. What are they expecting? What are they perceiving as a vicar who first takes the pulpit? Um, now, of course, good preaching grows out of love for God and love for people. Both those things. Poor preparation is simply a lack of love uh, for God and for people. Uh, it's very hard work. Uh, they're not used to it in this sense. You've got to make it as easy as you can for them to hear the gospel. There's all sorts of issues around language. If you use the word prayer, we know what it means. They might have a completely different view of what prayer is. Words, classic Christian words like grace. Do they? Can you just use that word? Or not? How are you going to communicate through the sermon and other, all other teaching opportunities in a way that actually communicates to the people in front of you? When they're used to thinking, oh, this is what this guy thinks about the Premier League. Or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I dived straight in with 17 minutes. I set myself uh, a top limit of 17, uh, which was over three times as long as they were used to. Um, 18 months after one of the, after the cross warden left, uh, I found she timed my service to the second. And there was a little notebook in the back in her seat, which she'd forgotten about. We'd had sermons of how long and exclamation marks and stuff. But... I think if if we if we think that if we think that it is prayerful, warm-hearted gospel <coughs> that changes people's hearts, the one thing you've got to grab hold of is the place where God changes people's hearts. If you don't grab hold of that, you're always going to be playing catch-up. I think. Okay, you'll need courage to do that. Um. It is often better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission in some things. So I remember we, we, we tried an all-age service. PCC thought it was a wonderful idea. They forgot to ask what that meant to me. So I did what I did and then just asked for forgiveness because I would never have got permission in that. It didn't, didn't need to be discussed in that way. So prayer and preaching, absolutely vital, of course. One other great tool uh, that you may well have in this kind of situation that Paul talks about in the seminar is liturgy. That's something that very often your congregation will be used to and you can use it to teach the gospel. I, I think the benefit of liturgy is massive in this context because they're used to it. Um, and you use that to your advantage. Uh, a good liturgy is gospel-shaped. And we're trying to build them up in the gospel. Uh, the traditional liturgies of the Church of England are strongly gospel-shaped. Um, and 
that helps people then in the, in the service on a Sunday they get an expression of what it means to relate to God that when you meet him you may want to consider confessing your sins pretty, pretty early but then you might want to rejoice in the, your status in Christ you might want to commit to him and to follow him so I need to know what he says and I need his help for that so I'm going to say some prayers and I'm going to look forward and enjoy my communion with God uh, if, it's, if it's Lord's Supper. And the, God, the service ought to uh, describe to us every week what it means to relate to God and to know God and how we grow in that. That's a pretty, that's a pretty traditional view of liturgy, but you, know, you might have different views about that. But that's been a real help to me in my ministry because it instills patterns of relationship with God in the regulars, whether they know it or not. And that can help a congregation understand something close to what they've been saying for years. Um, and it builds them up in uh, the gospel. Well, that's just a little glimpse of some of what uh, went on in that seminar on Jake. We will be putting up an edited version of the whole seminar on our website that you'll be able to listen to if you're interested and when we've got that available I will make sure the link is added to the blog post that goes with this podcast. We'll be back again next week with more from Jake. Do tune in again then and do check out uh, the website where we will be uh, posting uh, a number of the talks and seminars uh, from that conference uh, for you to listen to in their entirety. God is alive.